Welcome to Know, the, the Journal, Journal of, of Lifelong, Lifelong Learning, Learning. Podcast. podcast. Hi, welcome to the first ever No Journal podcast. The theme of this podcast is firsts. First babies, first Occupy movements, career firsts, first teaching experiences. Now there's more to these stories, but I don't want to say too much. This piece comes to us from Andrew Dalton. Dalton authors the Tumblr In Lieu of Flowers. It's read and produced by Chris Bolton who puts out Story Life Podcast. At the Associated Press, we may write about your death before it happens. Like a lot of big news organizations, the AP, where I work in the Los Angeles Bureau, writes obituaries in advance for famous and prominent people that are old, sick, or otherwise near death. Yes, it's morbid, yes, there's something unseemly about it, and yes, we all understand this, but it's also necessary to do our jobs properly. And I assure you, if you were to die, you'd much prefer thoughtful, well-researched remembrance over something dashed off while your body is still cooling off. This shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. I'm sure you've been amazed at how quickly the AP or the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times will go from announcing that someone is dead to putting out a thousand-word obituary. Most newspapers call the collection the morgue, We go a little more formal and classy using the awkward but apt term preparedness for ours. So you would say, do we have a preparedness for Frank Sinatra? We did, of course. Unlike other big news, earthquakes, wildfires, plane crashes, we know that famous people's deaths are going to happen. Everyone dies eventually. And we know mostly what we're going to write about them, whether it's Oscars won, books written, countries led, or atoms split. So we write them while their subjects are alive, leaving empty space at the top where we fill in the date and the circumstances of their death, like a headstone that's etched with name, date of birth, and a little dash that represents the lifetime, with only the death date left empty, but not for long. We always make sure these stories, when they're saved, don't say the words death, die, or obituary. There are several reasons for this, but the biggest one is that these stories don't technically declare somebody dead, just in case one gets accidentally sent out in the world, which is such a frightening thought for a newsroom that I'm going to stop speaking immediately. A little side note, we should all hope that if we get an obituary, it reads died and not was found dead. Just trust me on this. I've had this strange experience of writing an obit for someone, this happened with some big sports figures here in Los Angeles, and then running into them out in public. This makes me feel oddly superior. I know something about them, something major, something they and their loved ones don't know. I know how they're going to be remembered, the first draft of it anyway. Traditionally, you're not supposed to talk to outsiders about the preparedness. You don't say who's in it, who we have tapped for death, or even that it exists. This changed a few years ago when Britney Spears was in one of her crazy phases, We had to entertain the possibility that she might possibly die in the middle of some wild night as we wrote up an obit. They're rare for younger people, but it happens. We had one for Michael Jackson. It was written during his trial, when we were worried about possible suicide. 
Somehow, the gossip website TMZ got wind of the fact that we had done an advance obit, and they made big news of it, as though the AP were digging Britney's grave. We responded in a way that I liked, since I, like most people in the news business should, favor as few secrets as possible. We wrote a story admitting that we'd written the obit for Miss Spears and explained that we do this all the time. The AP has approximately 1,000 prepared obituaries in its files on a wide variety of public figures, my colleague John Rogers wrote in the 2008 story. Although most are on people over 70, Spears is not the only 20-something whose passing the news agency is ready for. I've been at the Associated Press for 10 years now, and at first it wasn't the best fit. The job is mostly about getting police and fire captains and politicians to say things they don't want to say, or calling people who don't want to be called. When I went into journalism, I was looking to turn my modest writing talent into a little bit of money, and I had no desire to do this kind of stuff. But I found that I loved obituaries, almost from the start. They let you write about all kinds of subjects you'd never get to as a hard news reporter. Physics, music, golf, aerospace, whatever it was that your now-dead subject was famous for. The other part should be unpleasant for me, but isn't. Unless you're famous enough to have an official spokesman, we have to call a loved one or close friend to confirm that the dead have died, often just hours after they've expired. At first I dreaded the crap out of this. It felt so horribly invasive. Calling poor widows and newly fatherless children to poke them about the details of what may well be the most traumatic moment of their lives. But I soon found that making those calls, with rare exceptions, was a lovely experience. If you've ever lost someone important, you know that in the immediate aftermath, you're stunned and looking for useful things to do. You often find yourself vacuuming or doing dishes. And under these circumstances, there's nothing more most people would like to do than share cherished memories about their loved one that they know will be spread far and wide. I found more often than not, when I pried into someone's life, they end up wanting to talk for longer than I do. I have to find a delicate way to get off the phone and get to work while they're still talking about their wedding day or their late husband's love of his grandchildren. I won't be so crude as to say I'm happy when I'm on the job and a prominent person dies, but I do find it energizing because I know just what to do and I'm anxious to be a part of it. When word comes in that someone has died, usually because some media outlet is reporting it or someone has called us, the first thing we do is look to see if we have a preparedness for them. We thank the high heavens if we do, because even if we want to shape the story ourselves, it's best to have some clay to mold. My life was saved by our preparedness for Charlton Heston, who died when I was alone on the job one Saturday night. When Gore Vidal died recently, we had a wonderful, thorough preparedness, 2,000 words worth, with contact info including his home number, which I called to verify his death with his nephew. I got to add my name to a tour de force of a story. But sometimes, somebody prominent dies and we're left to our own devices. Such was the case with Henry Hill. We had no preparedness. But that was okay because I'd been preparing for half my life. And the story we ended up with was a tribute to that preparation, and taught me that there's no such thing as useless knowledge. If you haven't heard of Henry Hill, you're not alone. A bunch of our editors hadn't. He's someone who either rings a bell or he doesn't. He's the gangster who started as essentially an intern for the mob at age 13, rose through its ranks, and then turned on his bosses and brothers, sending dozens of them to jail by becoming an FBI informant. Still nothing? 
He was the character Ray Liotta played in Goodfellas. So for that movie's many hardcore fans, and the even more hardcore fans of the Howard Stern show where he became a regular caller late in life once he was booted from the Witness Protection Program, he's a household name. Me and my bandmates in my 20s, who were also my best friends, were big fans of both the movie and the radio show, so I knew my Henry Hill upside and down. I watched that movie constantly and quoted it even more constantly as I do to this day. Most people know that movie for Robert De Niro. Nah, 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 you, you insulted him a little bit. Or the Napoleon Complex performance of Joe Pesci. You think I'm funny? What, you mean I'm a clown? I amuse you? But for us, that movie was all about Leota and his character Henry. He has so many golden lines and can shift quickly from scary to lovable. My drummer, Ricardo, the funniest man I've ever known, had a brilliant, wordless impression of him making cutlets while looking out the window for FBI helicopters. I knew nearly every bit of his dialogue, and when I heard Hill had died, I knew exactly which ones I wanted to use. It was the perfect marriage of obit and reporter. Once I got the tip, it came from TMZ again, I had the one other reporter in the room try to verify that he had died, and I started typing like crazy. I was told once the NAP deadline is now o'clock. It's actually a little bit earlier than that. Normally, it would be weird to quote at length the fictionalized movie character of someone in the real-life obituary, but this case was different. I knew that the movie was based closely on the book, and had the same co-writer. And the book, Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, came straight from Hill's mouth. Plus, the movie character was the biggest reason Hill was famous in the first place, so I felt perfectly comfortable. I knew I wanted to use the great line from early in the movie where Henry introduces himself. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. For us to live any other way was nuts. And I absolutely wanted to use this line, the closing speech of the movie, at the end of the obit, because it was such a perfect summation of the end of his life. I had paper bags filled with jewelry stashed in the kitchen. I had a sugar bowl full of coke next to the bed. Anything I wanted was a phone call away, Hill says. Today, everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce. I got egg noodles and ketchup. I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. I was worried schnook wouldn't be acceptable for the AP wire, which is very family friendly, but it made it to the final version, though I still can't tell you what it means. As well as I know these lines, I'm also not dumb enough to trust my memory when it comes to sending stories out to thousands of readers. Fortunately, knowing the gist of each line allowed me to Google it and check it. I was mostly spot on, but had to do some tweaking. I also knew I had to quote from the book, since it was the beginning of the Henry Hill myth, and probably had a perfect summation of what his job was in the mob, which was hard to glean from the movie. Trouble was, I didn't have a copy of the book, and I was kicking myself because I knew there was one on my girlfriend's shelf. I'd been meaning to borrow it for months and hadn't grabbed it yet. Getting access to the right parts of books is challenging online, but you can mine bits and pieces by Amazon's Look Inside feature in Google Books. It took only a little bit of this to find the kind of passage I needed. Henry Hill was a hood. He was a hustler. He had schemed and plotted and broken heads, Pelegi wrote in the book. He knew how to bribe, and he knew how to con. He was a full-time working racketeer, an articulate hoodlum from organized crime. Knowing I had killer quotes and a solid grasp of the material allowed me to relax and let my writing style flow freely. It resulted in some of my own lines I really love, like this one. Born in Brooklyn to an Irish father and an Italian mother, Hill's life with the mob began at age 11, when he wandered into a cab stand across the street in 1955 looking for work. He soon knew the life of these silk-suited soldiers was for him. I especially love this bit of analysis, which was a thought I'd had as an aficionado of gangster movies for years, but had never put into words. 
Unlike older mafia tales, which focused on family and honor, Wise Guy and Goodfellas mostly dwelled on how utterly awesome it was to be in the mob, on the gangster as rock star, at least until life caught up with you. Like Schnook, I worried this casual use of awesome would get chopped, but it made it in two. At this point, I was getting that good humming feeling that something good was happening, but things weren't going so well on the verification front. We have strict guidelines on how we verify that someone has died at the AP. It needs to be someone whose name we can use who is either a family member, friend, or a close associate of the dead, or a cop or a coroner's investigator who will go on the record. The trouble with Henry Hill was he'd spent much of his life in a witness protection program, and all of his life before that off the grid. As he says in the book and movie, when he got busted, the only things that proved he existed were the birth certificate and his police record. He'd been booted from witness protection years before, but his wife and kids had long since severed ties from him and were living under different names. And it's not like you could just call up his colleagues who were either dead or gone or in prison. TMZ had talked to Hill's longtime girlfriend, Lisa Caserta. We knew that this was our best bet, and we used our public records resources to find her address pretty readily, but could not find a decent phone number, though we left messages at several. I even left a Facebook message for her young son, but heard nothing. So I was stuck with an obit I loved and adored, but it was useless. I had to leave it for the next day's crew, who would then renew our efforts to verify that he died. This killed me, because for all I knew, whatever editor got a hold of it the next day would have no idea who Hill was, and even with my awesome explanation, would have chopped my thousand-word masterpiece down to a boring, straightforward 300 words with my name not on it. So I went to bed that night and struggled to sleep, worried at what would be left of my work the next day. I didn't need to have worried. When I got into work the next day, I learned that after another round of failed phone calls, we'd sent a reporter up to the girlfriend's house, where she was sitting on the porch, smoking a cigarette, and gladly talked to him and gave him a nice quote or two. I couldn't help but grin reading my opening lines, which appeared in countless newspapers and on countless websites around the country, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. Henry Hill spent much of his life believing his last moment would come with a bullet to the back of his head. In the end, he died at a hospital after a long illness, going out like all the average nobodies he once pitied. I love this part because it got at what made Hill such a great subject for an obit. His death itself was news, not because a prominent person had passed away, because it meant, in a sense, that he'd won. For most of his life, he thought he'd get whacked by the mob, but he'd escaped them all by dying in a hospital bed. I, for my part, also sat down that day to a round of email love from my editors, both in Los Angeles newsroom and from national headquarters in New York. It was the best thing I'd ever written, and it turned out it was a good thing we couldn't verify it that night, because I had many times the audience the next day. It really made my name in the company, and it's a wave I'm still riding. That doesn't mean a whole lot, of course, in the struggling world of journalism. I don't have paper bags full of jewelry or a sugar bowl full of coke next to the bed. But that's okay. I'm fine being a regular schnook. Mona 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 Mona
Mwenye wando kala mbenyaba Eme ngondo ya mye Mwona mwona mwenye Mwenye weza Mwona mwona mwenye Mona mona mwenye Soya wesa Mona mona mwenye Alunga ngumba Aluke nungala fwa Ngamu bingi kiaze Mwene wandoka la benyaba Eme ngondo yanye Mona mona mwenye Soya wesa Mona mona mwenye Alunga ngumba Sambi wangi panamona Kamu valele Mwene wando kalabenyaba Eme ngondo yange Muna muna mwenye Munga ngumba Muna muna mwenye Suya weza Muna muna mwenye Suya weza Muna muna mwenye Munga ngumba Zambi wangi panamona Gamu falele Mwanyeze wando kalabenyaba Eme ngondo yamye mwenye Up next, during three and a half years traveling throughout Asia, David Skolnick survived a run-in with a notorious German terrorist wanted by Interpol, a motorcycle crash, a house fire ignited by a Molotov cocktail, and a determined fruit-stealing monkey. No longer nomadic or in his early 20s, Skolnick is a writer and a teacher based in Berkeley, California. This piece was produced by Nathan Dalton. After this accident in Tibet, I continued traveling through China. Actually, a couple other weird things happened, but I'll pass over those right now. I eventually made it to uh, Vietnam. I was in Saigon at this bar to listen to some music. Uh, it was pretty late, two or three in the morning. So I was walking home, and it was very smoky in the bar, so I was, I was happy to be able to walk for a while. And this um, uh, Cyclo driver came over. The Cyclo drivers are these, these guys who ride around these bicycle taxis. Uh, you want a ride? No, thanks. I'm just walking home. Thanks. No, get in, get in. I'll give you a ride. And I'm like, no, 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 thanks. I, I just want to walk home. No, get in, get in. I'll give you a ride. Look, man, I, I want to walk. Thank you very much. Then he rode his bike in front of me. It blocked my way. So I walked around him, and he did it again. He blocked me again. And now I was actually getting really angry. And so I pushed his bike out of the way, and I continued walking. And then he got out of his bike, and he picked up a rock. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way he's going to throw that rock at me. And he, he threw that rock at me, and it hit me right on my leg, right on my scar from my broken leg in, in Taiwan. And it was, it was very sensitive. And it started bleeding. Immediately, I just exploded in anger. And it was weird. The level of anger just seemed to come out of nowhere. So I immediately, I looked around, and I saw a brick. And so I picked up this brick. A part of me was saying, don't do this. Step back, calm down. But that part had no control over what my body was doing. And it was, it was actually a really frightening thing that this anger had really taken control of my body. And so we were standing there. He had picked up a, another rock. He was standing there with this rock, and I was standing there with this brick. It was like a, a Mexican standoff. These uh, two prostitutes on a motorcycle were passing by, and they came over, and, and they started yelling at the cyclo driver, berating him. 
eventually they got him to move off. They offered me a ride, and so I, I got on their motorcycle. Me sandwiched between two prostitutes in Saigon at three in the morning is, you know, kind of interesting. But the reason I tell that story is just because the whole event freaked me out, how I got so angry, and I didn't seem to have control over that anger, and I didn't really know where it came from. And I decided at that point that I was going to do um, a meditation retreat. I was going to learn meditation. I went to uh, Dharamsala, India, because I knew that there were meditation retreats there that you could do. Ten days of no talking, no reading, no writing, not even like looking at other people in the eyes. You wake up at 5 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning, you meditate all day, and I loved it. It just totally blew my mind. At the end of 10 days, I still didn't want to talk. Everybody else was dying to talk, and I was just really into this sort of state of mind. And so then after this retreat, I moved into this little cottage that was for rent, not too far away from the meditation retreat, which was up way up on top of this mountain. It was called Chopra House. Uh, and I think actually that it might have been the place where the Dalai Lama first stayed when he fled to India. I think that was the story. There were very few people up there, so I had a lot of solitude. You could sit on the porch and look out over the, the Kangra Valley, which is absolutely beautiful. You know. It's, it was at the foot of the Himalayas, mountains and thick forest, and these birds of paradise were flying around with these colorful feathers and tails and all kinds of monkeys. There were macaque monkeys, and there were these other monkeys with these uh, really amazing like, white fur faces, and there were even like leopards. I had this, developed this great routine. You know, I was meditating first thing when I woke up for about an hour. Then uh, I would do Tai Chi for about an hour, and I, I, was like, I was teaching some friends who lived on the other side of the mountain Tai Chi, so I would teach them for like another hour, and then at night I would meditate for another hour. So I was deep into this meditation state of mind. And so after my meditation and my Tai Chi, I would make breakfast. And it was a great breakfast. I had all these different grains, and I had dried fruit, and I would top it all off with this uh, fresh banana. And I would sit out on my porch, and look out over the valley and just enjoy being there. Spiritually, I was on fire. So there I was, feeling at one with the universe. One day, I was making my breakfast, and everything's all done, except I don't have my banana, and then I hear a noise in my bedroom, and I look in my bedroom, and on top of my bed is this huge macaque monkey. He looks like a little Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he's got these huge muscles. And I've got my bowl of fruit on the headboard above my bed. And he's heading for the bowl of fruit. And I say, hey! And, and the monkey looks over at me. And he, he's got this like look of disdain on his face. He looks at me and then he turns around and keeps going for the bowl. And I like, hey, stop! And he looks at me again and he tilts his head like, who do you think you are? He reaches into the bowl and he grabs my bananas. And he's like walking off of my bed with my bananas. I'm like, stop! And again, he gives me this look, and he's just like, yeah, who do you think you are? He jumps off the bed, and he just strolls out of my room. And there's no, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to let this monkey get away with my fruit. I need that fruit to make the perfect breakfast. I run to the door, and I've got my umbrella there. And I jump out there with this umbrella, and this, this monkey's like magical. Somehow he's, he's teleported all the way to the end of the porch. I don't know how he did it. And he's sitting there looking at me, eating my banana. And he's got the other bananas in his hand. And I'm just like filled with rage. This monkey stole my banana. And so I, like, I raise the umbrella above my head and I let out this, this warrior cry. I'm like, Aah! 
And so I start running after this monkey. And the monkey's just sitting there. He's just looking at me. This is a bold monkey. And I get to the end of the porch, which is in front of where my bathroom is. There's a water tank on top of the bathroom. And there's a little bit of a leak in the water tank. And it's a constant drip, 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 drip on the porch. And right where it's dripping, there was this nice green, very slick patch of algae. And so I get to the end of the porch and that monkey is just staring at me like he knows exactly what's gonna happen. And I hit that patch and I fly through the air like Superman except flying backwards. There's this broken tree stump right there on the end of the porch, basically wooden daggers. I fly an inch over that thing, over the side of the hill, and I fly down the mountain, which by the way is covered in nettles. So I hit the ground and I'm rolling through nettles until I hit the bottom uh, where there's a nice big boulder for my head to rest on. I knock myself unconscious. I wake up all dizzy. I look up there and you know what I saw? That monkey eating my bananas looking down at me. And I'm sure he was laughing. And I'm like, I'm gonna get those bananas. So I had to start dragging myself up this hill of nettles and I get to the top and the monkey's gone. A friend of mine had heard me, because she comes running up the hill and says, I heard you screaming, are you oh? And she saw me just like covered in mud and blood. And she's like, ah! She said, what happened, what happened? I just said, fucking monkey. <laughs> and so I learned a very valuable lesson, which was to let go of the banana. This next piece is by, well, it's by me, Liam Nelson. On occasion, well-meaning people have told me that I would make a good teacher. And let me say that I value teachers greatly. However, when it comes to my own efficacy, I offer this piece as the rebuttal. Omar stomps into class one morning, slams his backpack down on the desk, and seethes like a career middle manager. It's the first week of Ramadan, and although he's only eight, he's been fasting for a few days. Not all children fast during this important Muslim holiday, but it's a chance for Omar to be measurably precocious, rather than just a smartass. The kid's far behind in English, math, and height, but he makes up for all of it with charm and despotic glee. I've come to Dubai, and ultimately this classroom, to support my wife's career. Since packing up our apartment in Oakland and boarding that very long flight for the United Arab Emirates, 
I've mostly earned my keep as a journalist. Now, during the sweltering summer of 2009, freelance work has slowed to a crawl, and I've answered an online ad calling for English tutors. I am not, nor have I ever been a teacher, but I'm curious to find out if I can cut it. At first, the hardest part is simply keeping Omar under control. Feature Omar at the campus coffee shop where I stupidly shell out $4.60 for coffee drinks each school day. Because this is Dubai, even Knowledge Village, a sort of educational office park development, is full of junk food. Off the top of my head, there's a Subway, a Burger King, and a Starbucks that, upon first glance, appears to be in the lobby of a Krispy Kreme. And that's just a fraction of what's on offer. I can't leave Omar in class when it's time for my break, so I take him with me. How that constitutes a break, I'm not sure. Omar immediately climbs up on top of the counter, grabs the sucker, and asks, How much this one? We need to work on his grammar. Four durhams, sir, replies the 30-ish guest worker to the eight-year-old local. Work visas are tenuous here, and service industry folks generally seem afraid of the locals, even the kids. Dubai mixes all the socioeconomic tiers of the planet in one place, and the results are oddly consistent. For instance, fast food restaurants and cafes tend to be staffed by Filipino workers. With jobs, housing, and visas all theoretically vulnerable, service people are perhaps overly tolerant of misbehaving local kids. Maybe no dirham, suggests Omar in a voice that is imperious but also charismatic. The woman eventually gives in, but when I intervene, paying full price for the sucker, he no longer wants it, and I throw it in a desk drawer where it sits for weeks. He'll find it one day while ransacking my desk in search of the pens I've hidden in an effort to end drawing time. Omar is a master negotiator, and like most practitioners of the trade, he's not satisfied getting what he wants, but must get what he wants on his terms. In one of many gross overestimations of my powers, he seems to think I can control space and time. How many left in class? About an hour, I reply, neglecting to correct him. How about ten minutes, Omar suggests. Omar, I can't make your mom come any sooner. Okay, fifteen minutes. Now it's the fifth day of Ramadan, and the winking subtext of our banter has gone flat. Although fasting is the stereotypical excuse offered to explain erratic behavior during the holy month, I'm fairly certain Omar simply objects to having had to come to class at all. To be fair, we were supposed to be done by now. But his family, with little or no notice, postponed a week of classes and went to Abu Dhabi. As a result, Omar is stuck in an Arabian version of summer school and doggedly rebuts my lame attempts to play the Freddy Shoop role. Bromar, my man, how are you today? I am not Bromar. I am Omar, he replies. Although incredulous at first, Omar eventually catches on and we cultivate a game in which he perfects his mock outrage at my nicknaming attempts. Okay, you call me Boss Man and I'll call you Little Boss Man. I am not Little Boss Man. I suggest this one day during break, after we've both checked our hair in the mirrored wall of the elevator interior. This particular vanity is mostly theater, and I play it up, mussing and then repairing my coif, taking my sunglasses on and off, until he eventually does the same. To my secret delight, he does eventually call me boss man, but only when he's trying to wheel and deal with me, like a used car salesman invoking your given name too often. Omar, USA number one, I say now content to simply wind him up. No, it's number five. My used car salesman is blossoming into a diplomat.
We have our shtick down by the time Ramadan rolls around, and I'm flummoxed by Omar's grumpiness on this particular day. Omar has been my most challenging student to date, in part because he's my first real student. I've taught guitar lessons, and I've done a bit of tutoring for people switching from Windows to OS X, but I've never taught something as legitimately academic as the English language. When things go poorly in the classroom, I'm momentarily stung anew by my utter lack of credentials or formal training. In fact, my mere employment in Dubai's huge educational money machine makes me skeptical of the machine itself and, paradoxically, less concerned about having to wing it every single day. And yet today, when I can't even get the kid to lift his head off the desk, I do wonder if I'm cut out for Knowledge Village. Normally, when Omar fixates on some deficiency of logic in the workbook, or simply refuses to work, we turn to the whiteboard, where he draws blocky SUVs with seemingly dripping exhaust pipes that turn out to be machine guns. A few weeks in, when I discover his insane love of lions, I draw several for him. Lions giving the thumbs up while riding BMX bicycles off launch ramps, flying over the heads of other lions who look on in awe, lions eating ice cream cones, and so on. This morning I can tell that none of that is going to work, so I simply pick up one of his books and read to myself, opting not to spar with the Manny Pacquiao of teacher-student combat. It takes at least half an hour, but it works, and he eventually requests his single favorite assignment, perhaps the only one this willful child has ever completed in entirety, Animal Quiz Show. Years ago, I read an article about how Blue's Clues was developed to be stickier than, say, Sesame Street, by use of simple repetition. I may have this wrong, as my memory has a creative bent, but Blue's Clues was designed to be a superior learning tool in large part because it repeats the same episode five days a week. Apparently, bludgeoning repetition works well for kids. In place of a master's in education, I have this article that I read years ago and at least partly remember. I seize on this little chunk of knowledge and it becomes the rationale for allowing Omar to repeat Animal Quiz Show, sometimes as much as five times per session. Omar has long ago memorized every answer, so one day when his father shows up to sit in on the last few minutes of class, Omar appears to have become an English-speaking dynamo. In reality, he's my accomplice in duping his father as he nails each answer with faint earnestness, furrowing his brow in mock concentration, but never overacting. Later, on a subsequent visit, Omar's father, an exceedingly kind person and genuinely concerned parent of the sort you would hope to encounter on any continent, informs me that he's forgotten my Ramadan gift in the car. But when his wife comes to pick up Omar for the final day of class later that week, she'll have my new English language edition of the Quran with her. The nature of the gift is not entirely unexpected. Omar's dad wears the long beard of a pious Muslim, and Omar has asked a few culturally probing questions that suggest a religious home life. Questions like, how do you pray? Which I wasn't quite sure how to answer, so I showed him a few poses which I've never actually struck, but that describe a sort of TV version of American prayer. And, you eat pig? To which I respond, oh yeah, pig, cat, dog, canary, Gila monster, whatever you got. Then I explained what a Gila monster is. I was surprised when the gift did arrive, as it turned out not to be for me at all, at least not directly. For your wife, explained Omar's mom, handing me a giant gift bag that contained a cylinder full of musky Arab perfume, a scarf, a sequin dress from India that we gave to a co-worker of my wife's, who loved it, and a tiny pink telephone-shaped bedside clock 
that looks like it might have belonged to an anachronistic Marie Antoinette. There may have been some other stuff in there too, but there weren't any religious texts. I'm not sure what happened to the Quran, which I'd been looking forward to thumbing through if not actually reading, but it was very kind nonetheless. I found Omar's family as charming and thoroughly enjoyable as they were unpredictable. I'd fallen sideways into teaching, and by this point I'd given up on actually meeting any Emiratis. One morning late in the summer, Omar's mom dropped off Omar with his six-year-old brother, Salem, simply asking, You don't mind, do you? I really didn't, although Salem had already been prohibited from auditing the class. The first day had proved far too chaotic with both brothers running around the classroom glomming all the dry erase markers. On this later visit, Omar wound up being decently focused on Animal Quiz Show, while Solemn drew monkeys on the board, so it worked out all right. Animals always seemed to help. As a tutor, I had no idea what I was doing. The pay was not great, and the success of the student was ultimately up to them anyway. And yet I felt a little guilty that I wasn't able to better serve Omar. He's a mess, or at least he was, but he has a lot of heart. I like to think that Although Omar basically refused to do the work, our constant teasing, negotiating, and declarations of disbelief in each other's behavior all comprised an education of sorts. It was, at the very least, all conducted in English. Up next, Hyas Swanheiser tries to find her place at Occupy San Francisco. This piece was produced by Nathan Dalton. When I saw you scraping wet sandwiches off the sidewalk with your bare hands that first night, that's when I knew you were really committed. As my co-curator at the Occupy San Francisco Art and Performance Series, Seth Fisher said a lot of funny things, but the sandwiches comment was probably the funniest. He was right. I was committed. But long before I found myself plucking cold cuts off the concrete, I'd been busy, at work, until one day, like so many other Americans, I was asked to pack up my things and leave. My culture writer and editor job at an alt-weekly newspaper was eliminated on September 27, 2011. Culture writers all over the nation were shown the door that same day by the company I worked for. It was a coordinated strike that ended my job of eight and a half years. I wasn't entirely surprised. In fact, I was ready to leave. I liked the people there, still do, but because print journalism is dying, the work was hard and getting harder, and in truth, 
I wasn't personally interested in editing, wrangling freelancers, working for a large company, or getting ahead in the industry. I was only ever in it for the art. A scant six days after getting laid off, I found myself at the Occupy San Francisco camp, OSF-1, at the Federal Reserve Building. I'm a longtime left-wing protester, although not the kind you might expect. Generally, I agree with the other protesters on politics, but don't want to dress like them or listen to their music. They find me prissy, and I find them lacking in organizational and aesthetic intention. We both have valid points. I found the camp repellent, which shouldn't have surprised me, but did. My usual response to finding myself in a situation like this is to find the horrid kitchen and wash dishes. If I can just do some work, I won't have that look on my face. The look that makes white people with dreadlocks so angry. I quickly located the horrid kitchen at OSF1 and prepared to wash dishes. I had just started when I was approached by a white person with dreadlocks asking, can I help you? I was unable to answer. We're trying to keep this area closed off, Dreads continued snottily. No sign marked any of this. To make or even tolerate legible signage is frowned on. I lost my temper, said bad things, pointed out every detestable, tired, annoying cliche I could see until I ran into a friend of Seth's who chastened me with her sheer enthusiasm. She had never been to a protest before and was glowing and bouncing. This is so amazing. Fuck the banks. I'm going to go to that march over there, she said, and ran off. Seth and I looked at each other. Years before, we had worked together organizing a protest against the ground war in Afghanistan, so we each knew what the other was thinking about, our shared impatience with protest cliches. That and the white-hot fury we both felt when contemplating the phrases too big to fail or bail out. I know history won't treat Occupy kindly. I know I'm not treating Occupy kindly. So let me pause here to say that we thought in the very early days of October 2011 that the walls were all coming down and it was going to be fun. The message was out. We are the 99%, and now so many months later I still get choked up writing it. The 1%, the few people of the world who own most of everything, had been making 99% of the decisions about everything, and it was time to fix that problem right now. No one you'd ever met could possibly be your enemy. You've never met a one percenter and you never will. We were all in this together. Politics disappeared and equality was back on the table. What are their demands? Crusty media types kept asking. What are your demands? Came the answer. All of this means I was never on the fence about whether to actually go to Occupy. I just wasn't sure how I'd do it. Putting my head down and washing dishes for the duration was one option. It must have been the very next day that I heard that Jeff Mangum of Neutral Milk Hotel had played Occupy Wall Street in New York City. It struck me that he wasn't playing protest songs either. He was playing his own songs, using his own words and his own ideas instead of parroting Bob Marley like every single other musician I've ever heard at a protest. Significant. What a place. I started mouthing off to anyone who would listen. Occupy San Francisco should have awesomer music and everything else than, than anywhere. We have better art and comedy and dance and whatever than most places. And art people are screwed just as hard as anyone else by the economic collapse engineered by Wall Street. They're as angry as anyone else too, and they pay just as many taxes. You know what should happen? Someone should ask all the artists to come down here. 
At some point, I literally stopped mid-sentence, slapped my own forehead, and cussed hard, because I knew it was me. I had to do it myself. My resume was tailor-made for the uncompensated position I'd unwittingly created. I didn't like the Occupy camp, and that meant I had to fix it. I knew my comfortable life was over, that I would be dirty, stressed, and exhausted for the foreseeable future. But I would change it to be more like me, to look better, to sound cool, to catch people's attention in a new way. Classical violinists, stand-up comedians, and essayists are the 99%. This is new. This is being done in a new way. Maybe I should do something in a new way, too. That's the response I wanted, and I had to invent a way to get it. I wrote to Michelle T., the secret centrifuge of culture in San Francisco. Could you please tell me I'm crazy for wanting to organize an artist and writers and musicians series at the protest? They've got such good stuff in New York, and here it's brutally hippie only. But I shouldn't even continue thinking about it, right? No, she wrote back immediately. Of course you should do it! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's how many exclamation points she used, exactly. I posted online. Note to performers. It's going to be cold, awkward, dangerous, and difficult. And now, it's raining. Cops will come. Everything will change at the last minute or be canceled. If you perform at Occupy San Francisco, you'll be a complete badass. And if any artists out there decide not to join us because they are tired or depressed or have to work their non-jobs or are simply sick to goddamn death of performing for free, we salute them and say, we're out there for your broke ass specifically. The first show was an epic, legendary disaster. Seth and I had scouted the camp the day before to see where the performers should set up. There was plenty of space with good sight lines from several directions. But when we got back to the camp the following evening, it was dark, raining, and a tarp had been rigged up. Underneath the tarp were piles of sleeping bags, garbage, cardboard boxes, clothing, unidentifiable muck, and huddled people. There was no space to either stand or sit, and no one could see anything. For the next half hour, I haggled, hauled crap, stacked slippery bags in a corner, and yes, scraped wet food off the Market Street sidewalk with my hands to make a somewhat recognizable stage area. At the end, I was covered in sweat, freezing from the rain, and filthy. I ran around the camp begging street kids to come see the show. They didn't want to very much. Some did come, I think purely from their love of getting something for free. Most of the scheduled performers backed out as soon as they got there, citing an obviously hostile crowd and ridiculous conditions. This was understandable, and I shouldn't have called W. Kamau Bella chicken. Jesus Angel Garcia, a writer with a bullhorn, was the first artist to take the Occupy San Francisco Art and Performance Series, quote, stage, unquote. The audience, who couldn't be bothered to stop talking while he read, mostly ignored him. Then Seth read a beautiful story using Jesus's bullhorn, and I realized it was working. We were bringing art to the protest. Then Nato Green took the bullhorn and died for our sins. A small crowd was paying attention to the stage area by now, and Nato had planned to, and in fact did, tell the world's first joke through the human microphone. Unfortunately, right after that, he was heckled in a way that made it clear that somebody thought we, the performers and organizers, were the enemy. Later, a self-described poet known as Diamond Dave told us no one liked us 
because we sucked and that instead of local comedians, we should have brought Lenny Bruce. But if they thought they were going to scare us off or retain cultural control of this protest, they were wrong. Not only because of what Seth and I were putting together, but because everyone, 99% of everyone, had started to realize that Occupy was their protest too. I posted another call online. We intend to expand rather than emphasize the traditional protest aesthetic. This is not a drum circle and this is not an open mic. We want quality and that's what you got. It's your right to be out there, so holler and we'll help you. Performers began to appear at the camp, everywhere, doing whatever they wanted, whether anyone was watching or not, and totally without asking any street kids whether it was okay with them. One of the more memorable performances, which I had nothing to do with, was a dance troupe of about 15 young people dressed in street clothes, repeating a graceful pelvic thrust over and over again. Aren't you tired of getting screwed, read their sign. It was a stunningly powerful bit of dance protest, and I brought them bottles of water from the camp's closely guarded stores. This kind of thing, as you probably know, was happening all over the world. The second show, on October 12, 2011, was a magnificent confluence of good luck, insane talent, a full moon, and a lot of running back and forth on my part. A local artist, Deborah Walker, had painted and then delivered an enormous, beautiful sign for us. A massively talented band called Foxtail's Brigade had agreed to play, and several writers were scheduled to read, among them my very favorite white person with dreadlocks, the hilarious goth trans film reviewer Sherilyn Connolly. Plenty of things went wrong, but in the end, it was so beautiful and caused Seth and I to feel such extreme joy that I hardly knew how to take it all in. This, I thought to myself, is exactly what my version of utopia looks like. Exactly. That show was the first to give me the specific feeling of having used my odd assemblage of literacies to will a utopia into being. But every show after that, of which there were 12, each one a painful struggle to organize and a humiliating freak show to produce, created the same sense. This is what I want the world to be, exactly. I want, for example, for the world to be a place in which a drag queen named Little Miss Hot Mess can express radical political views while blasting experimental glam blues punks the gossip from a boombox atop a pair of seven-inch heels while popping balloons. I eventually worked out a glitchy yet functional relationship with the political organizers of Occupy San Francisco. Some hated us, while others were delighted to have high-quality protest art for once. The quote, stage, unquote, was never in the same place twice since the camp's physical structure ebbed and flowed with the tides of police raids, camp sanitation, tent distribution, and the exact locations of the louder, meaner, and more potentially violent protesters. The last show I organized was as fabulous and terrifying as the rest, and a bit fancier. It featured one poet, two belly dancers, a stand-up comic, and the conspiracy of beards, a 20-man a cappella choir singing the songs of Leonard Cohen. The camp, large and unruly by that time, came to a wholehearted stop as the choir arrived and began, already singing softly, to thread its way through the crowd toward where I stood. 
The choir director wore the international symbol of Occupy, that creepy, grinning Guy Fox mask, on the back of his head, so it faced the audience. Suddenly, and very much cathartically, there was a real audience. Everybody knows the dice are loaded, the men sang. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Helicopters hovered overhead. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Leonard Cohen is acknowledged to be political-ish, I think, but I've never heard his songs at a demonstration before. Now I can't imagine why not. I've never seen anything like its effect on the crowd. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Sounds very different when it's live on the ground at something that might be a revolution. I had started by scraping wet food off of one of San Francisco's busiest and filthiest sidewalks using my bare hands. In order to continue, I'd had to let people help. I experienced confusion, anger, and sometimes heartbreak on a daily basis. But my white-hot fury when contemplating the phrases too big to fail or bailout was all the permission I needed to exercise my right to protest, and the same was true for everyone I knew. The very people I was trying to entertain and inform said terrible things to my friends, tried to derail my plans, and were generally annoying. In the end, I had to walk away, even though people wanted me to keep going. But I made the Occupy San Francisco camp into my version of Utopia, and no one could stop me. No Journal is a project of Literacy Works, published by Paul Heavenrich, produced by Liam Nelson, Nathan Dalton, and Chris Bolton. Visit nojournal.org for more stories, and please sign up to receive this podcast. Thanks for listening.